Now, that is the wonderful single by the Archies. I believe it was their third, released back in 1969, the follow-up to Sugar, Sugar. And I chose this particular single that you've just heard as the sort of opener to podcast 123 entitled Saints Progress because it is so up and it's so lovely and it is so hopeful And um, it is the note on which I want to conclude this podcast, the note of, in the very uh, brightest and most ebullient sense, uh, openness to the future. And the podcast concerns the lessons for ministry, or rather the diagnosis for ministers and for clergy And this will be of particular um, diagnostic significance if you are in ministry or have been um, connected with feeling with those who are attempting to do something like ministry in Christianity. The diagnostic eye and focus of the uh, great novelist John Galsworthy on the nature, 
the defects and the classic besetting and in some respects terminal weaknesses in the structure of parish ministry. And we see Galsworthy's um, focus or we achieve Galsworthy's eye of reflection and discernment in two really very fine mid-period works by the man himself. Well, you know that he died in 1933, and he was born in 1867, and you all remember that he is the author of the famous The Foresight Saga, which this um, is not about. And before he had his great uh, breakthrough in terms of uh, reputation with The Man of Property, he wrote a number of novels and some very successful plays. And one of his novels, Saint's Progress, in 1919, deals very directly with the issue and the problem of ministry. And uh, at a point not to an advance of Saint's Progress, Galsworthy had written a play entitled A Bit of Love, or A Bit a, uh, as in bit of honey, you know, A Bit of uh, Love in 1915 that treats the exact same theme and in some ways treats it in a more kind of complete or resolved manner. And the theme is, what is wrong with the personalities of clergy, particularly ordained ministers slash priests in the Church of England, that creates a kind of suppressed persona that ultimately ends in very deep unhappiness, unhappiness both for the clergy themselves and finally, for the people they attempt to serve, and most directly for their families. So you might call this podcast 123, Saints Progress, a picture of you. Pictures of Lily, Lily, oh Lily. It's a picture of what actually happens. And the picture that Galsworthy creates is so uncommonly true to life that if you've been in the ministry or been close to people in the ministry or are um, kind of undertaking or thinking about ordained ministry in any capacity, you will be, uh, as they say in England, gobsmacked. Uh, You'll be thrown back uh, and utterly undone by his wisdom. And you say, where did he get this? Well, you read his diary and you find out that he threw over his... uh, his inherited Christianity, which was rather light, uh, but you throw it, he, he, he got it at Harrow School and, and it continued in the caste, as he would have said, in which he was brought up, a very strong dose of the Church of England, and not really too bad a dose. He was not brought up in evangelicalism, so there wasn't that much to react against, but he had a very strong um, reaction to Christianity because of the um, its connection in his mind with the divorce laws in England. And that's another <clears throat> very interesting cast. But um, throughout his life, he was a very religious man, despite what uh, you have read. Um, this is confirmed over and over and over and over again, and especially by his um, uh, great friend and uh, kind of essayist after he died named Matram who showed this and explained that this was a very religious man, but he was attempting to understand uh, the nature of God, man, death, humanity, sin, the future, the past, and what human life consists in. He was attempting to try to find that outside of Orthodox Christianity, and yet always echoing or working with, uh, coming from Orthodox Christianity. 
So in 1918, uh, during the war, 17 and 18, he wrote a book on um, Christianity, and uh, in 1915 he'd written a successful play, which he later on said was his favorite of all his plays, A Bit of Love. Now, what is most interesting about... I'm going to start with a quotation from... uh, from A Bit of Love, and then I'm going to read two quotations from um, Saints' Progress. And I won't give you a long, big uh, thing on this, but in uh, um, Mr. Strangway, and it's so funny, you know, he always, as was de rigueur uh, until very recently, in the long view at least, clergymen in England and in the Church of England, and in fact in the Episcopal Church in the USA, were always referred to as Mr. It was extremely unusual and considered highly on the margins to be known as father. Today, it's exactly the opposite, and it's almost as if people have to call themselves father or call other clergy father to satisfy their own sense of sort of, I don't know what the word is, specialness. And um, I understand it. I'll be buried. Those who bury me from this perspective will bury me as Father Paul or Father Zal. But it is not, in fact, historically the case. And it's so funny when you see in um, Galsworthy, who grew up in mainstream liberal Christianity in its Church of England format, it's uh, more or less liberal. You um, Orthodox, but always liberal in its tendencies and in its modus vivendi, except on divorce, as he saw it. You find um, always the clergyman is Mr. Strangway, or in the case of Saints Progress, Mr. Pearson. It just makes you laugh. Now, um, Strangway is a clergyman in rural Devon, a highly, you know, they're all sort of upper class people who find themselves serving um, in um, normal, everyday uh, situations. And uh, this Mr. Strangway is the curate in a parish in a village in Devon. And uh, he lives with a family. His digs are with a family, a nice church family named the Burlingham's. And Mrs. Burlingham, after she sees poor Strangway's uh, uh, terribly deep anguish over the loss, through her loving another man, of his wife, that is to say, Strangway, uh, Strangway at age 35 has been left by his uh, beautiful wife for another man, causing a vast scandal. And this... Uh, scandal comes to light, which he had nothing to do with in any active way in A Bit of Love. And his hostess, who's a very shrewd and smart woman, and I won't try to put in Galsworthy's sort of accent, uh, West Country um, kind of English she puts into her mouth, she comments to the rector's wife, speaking about the young curate, age 35, who's in trouble, she says the following things. For all him so moony and gentle-like, I think is a terrible, passionate man inside. He's a got a saint in him, for sure, but tis only half-baked in a manner of speaking. For all him so moony and gentle-like, says Mrs. Burlicum of Mr. Strangway, the curate, I think he's a terrible, passionate man inside. He a got a saint in him, for sure, but tis only half-baked in a manner of speaking. Well, um... This uh, theme works itself out in a young man who is really a St. Francis-type character. He's an absolutely holy and dear and forgiving, wonderful man who shows by his actions and his attitude, especially towards his wife and also towards parishioners, while being very human, because he does one very, very 
bad thing. He allows himself to get truly angry at some parishioners. And if you know about the ministry, you'll know that that is one absolute no-no. You never, you have to subdue your anger when you get angry at parishioners. You absolutely must. If you if you let it get control of you, you lose forever um, in a parish. It's very hard to recover and I know from experience. Now, um, Strangway, being human, and Galsworthy has humanized him by an episode of anger, is nonetheless a saintly type. He's also a musician. He plays the flute, and uh, he is a very, very lovely, aesthetic man who is almost a kind of Christian pantheist, but a real Christian. He focuses on forgiveness, and that's plainly stated. And yet, Strangway has suppressed himself. The meaning and the... um, the uh, power of a bit of love is it betray it it, it be, be it bespeaks a clergyman Strangway who has because of the nature of Christianity as he has received it and as he has to practice it in the ordained ministry is always a little apart from the problems of his parishioners which they sort of want is always having a slight position of transferential authority and is also because of mainly the um, taboos related to sex and related to any kind of kind of the deeper human visceral emotions has has kind of suppressed his deepest self. So he's not he's a terrible passionate man. Not in a he's not libidinally, you know, off kilter. He's normal, absolutely normal. But he has suppressed himself, and therefore is really only two thirds a human being in the richest sense. And the play, a bit of love, is his coming to find who he is as a Christian. And also as a, as a transparent and integrated person. Now it's an old theme, but I want to talk about this just for a second. Um, but before I do, I want to uh, 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 underline and underscore this theme of a very good man who is the victim, almost unwittingly or unconsciously, of the suppression of some of his deepest and most important and most beautiful instincts, which are so bottled up that they create an impossible. Um, situation for the man in which ultimately, in the case of Saint's progress, he has no choice but to sort of lay down his ministry or at least morph it in a most um, uh, credible manner because he is not really himself in the parish. And this is not that he's a wild man or he's a, you know, some awful person because these people who go to the ministry never are. Do you think honestly that uh, predatory types go into the ministry? Yes, there are cases. Yes, there are cases. Certainly in the Roman Catholic Church, we know of several cases, and we know them in every church. You do find people who, for various reasons, uh, unhinged reasons, uh, are attracted to ministry because they can kind of get away with some kind of very hidden and suppressed and very active urge. But for the most part, I would say 95%, maybe 90, almost 98% of the clergy that I've known in all denominations went into it initially in good faith initially because you wouldn't go into it it's there's so much you know you're you're paid so little and you're you take so much abuse and there's so much nonsense associated with it that no wonder that um that that an awful lot of talented people who want something that they tangible out of life don't go into it so very often the large majority of men and women who go into the ministry are going into it in a way to save their souls they're going into it to to reconcile and find the answers to disharmonies and hungers and needs within themselves. So they start with a very sincere desire to find themselves, or to put it another way, to save their souls. And I mean that in the broadest possible sense. To really discover wholeness, often to, you might say, treat their disease, as we all are doing. And so you get actually often people who are really seeking to find within ministry 
an outlet and a format for their best instincts. Uh, but underlying that is the instinct to find out who they are, because this is what everyone's trying to do in the context of love, forgiveness, absolution, and often beauty and in a kind of uplifting uh, a sense of, of a transcendent truth that would answer some of the other in, initial and in, all-encrossing questions of life and death. So, Let's not um, be cynical here. There's no reason to be, and I say this after 35 years, really 40 years when it first began, at least 40 years of experience with clergy and the people in this field. They're going in both to find themselves, to save their souls, to do some good, and to kind of embody the very best aspirations and hopes of what it is to be a human being. That is actually true. So you have Edward Pearson, the uh, vicar, who comes from a sort of upper-class education background. He has a little bit of money. He's what used to be called a gentleman in English terms in 1917. And he's doing a darn good job, and he's much loved, but there's something missing. Uh, He's not, his wife, he's been a widower for 15 years, and there's a kind of profound suppression. Notice I say he's been a, he was happily married, then his wife died, and he's brought up his two children, who are now, uh, one is 19 and one is about 23, and he's brought up his little, his girls, Gratian and Noel, known as Nolly, and he's uh, really, uh, unfortunately, he's left a, a, the, the kind of potential for bitter fruit in his daughters because he's such a suppressed individual himself that he he's kind of um, very touchy. He's deeply sincere, and he's a really good man, and he's doing a wonderful job, and he's wholly committed to the people in his cure or in his work in this um, poor uh, parish in London. And um, yet something is profoundly missing. He basically is a Pharisee, although he he doesn't realize he is. And he's holding everyone to the kind of standard of suppression and displacement, you might say, that he has imposed in a kind of iron-disciplined way on himself. He's a moderate high churchman, and he loves music. His real love is music. He's a, a musician. He adores hymns and organ music. And his greatest uh, therapy, and it's inadequate, but it's his great therapy is to go into the church late at night and alone play the organ and play it very well. Uh, usually, interestingly enough, he's playing uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, um, the second Allegretto, the famous Allegretto movement which has been the soundtrack of movies as diverse as The King's Speech and uh, Lola by Jacques Demy and others. And uh, he plays an instrumental transcription of it for organ. And so you see how prophetic already um, Galsworthy is. But he's a man who's sincere, but his real inner passion, and he was happily and deliriously romantically in love many years ago, his real passion has now been focused on his music, but he isn't able to really bring that into his regular, daily, extremely um, active life of care and pastoral care for the thousands of people, many hundreds of people in his cure. And so at one point, and I think it's on page 552, he is speaking to his daughter. His daughter is 19, named Noel, and she is very much in sync with her dad. She's religious in a way, and yet now very involved with a man um, and uh, gets herself into tremendous hot water and her father with her through her passionate love for a young British soldier who's very suitable 
you might say, in human terms, but she's passionately in love with him. And uh, she has uh, allowed herself to become unsuppressed, although partly her father has enabled that because her father has come down so hard on this relationship that his 19-year-old daughter has that it has actually uh, caused her to act out. The, the, of course, as with always the law, the father's pharisaic uh, no to the young man becomes the uh, ignition switch to a passionate sexual affair that his daughter has with a young man her own age. And um, um, this young girl is speaking to an older man who's very wonderful about her father and herself. This is Noel, who's in the middle of a passionate relationship, talking to another very fine sort of avuncular chap about her unity with her dad. And I'm getting somewhere. She says, oh, no, I get a devil. And uh, she says, it comes from Daddy, speaking of the Reverend Mr. Pearson. It comes from Daddy, only he doesn't know because he's a perfect saint. But I know he's had a devil somewhere, or he couldn't be the saint he is. Hmm, said Mr. Fort. That's very deep, and I believe it's true. The saints did have devils. Poor Daddy's devil, said Noel, has been dead ages. It's been starved out of him, I think. Does your devil ever get away with you? Does it ever get its way with you? Noel felt her cheeks growing red under his stare, and she turned to the window. Yes, it's a real devil. Now, um, there's a later um, conversation, I believe. If you look up this book, get this book. As we sometimes say, run, don't walk to get Saints Progress, the 1990 novel by John Goldsworthy. I believe if you look on um, pages... Uh, 560 to 500, no, 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 that's not right, just a minute. If you look on pages 718 to 721 in the uh, long edition, it's near the end, you'll find that Nolly and her father Edward acknowledge this powerfully suppressed demon, which is just human nature, uh, that has been suppressed in them, but not in the daughter because of the father's pharisaism. Well, what am I getting at? I'm getting at the tragic danger of a man who is suppressed by the system he's in, by the transference he feels from his parish and the church, from the sense that he has that Christianity is about suppressing parts of himself that are so-called passionate, that his daughter denominates demons. And as a result, he is a very lost uh, and frustrated individual. And this comes out. He is, um, his ministry is affected by his suppression. And finally, fundamentally, but in a very um, really unusual way, altered forever, forever, uh, quoting Cartman, by the fact that it finally is forced to come out. Things happen in his life, as always happen, that force the disjuncture between parts of him that are suppressed and his public or ministerial persona that finally it, it cannot cohere. The center will not hold. <clears throat> And the house divided itself. You know, we're talking a lot about Abraham Lincoln these days. And remember the speech at Cooper Union, uh, which still stands? It's right near some of the best music stores in New York City, or at least the best music store about six blocks south of it, southeast of it. But um, in the Cooper Union uh, speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Well, um, Mr. Strangway, in A Bit of Love, by Galsworthy and Mr. Pearson in Saints Progress, or we would say Progress in the 1919 um, novel, these two men are, it cannot stand, and their ministry has to, uh, what is it, 
cut bait or fish or whatever it is. He, he, has, to, he has to finally decide what, what it's going to be. And each of them does in a most incredible and ultimately uplifting way. You won't be, this is not Elmer Gantry territory. These are not bad men. These are not men who are users. <clears throat> They're not men who are adopting a chameleon-like persona in the ministry in order to accomplish some darker agenda. Not, not a bit of it. They are utterly sincere, refined, <clears throat> a dear men, one age 35 and one age more like <clears throat> 60 or 55, 55, who are having to come to terms with this center that cannot hold. And I, I want to now talk about that a little bit with you um, as a kind of uh, kind of a hope. Uh, Fred Rogers says that there's often an emotional moment, or as another friend of mine says, a ping in the podcast. And I want to try, uh, you know, like Los Straitjackets, the last, um, the last, the uh, um, uh, third of their songs is always where it falls apart. The first two thirds are quite predictable. They're kind of a rockabilly take on whatever song they're covering or whatever Christmas carol they're covering. And it's always in the last third that they go bananas, whether it's Itchy Chicken or State Fair or their incredible version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, of all things. Look it up on YouTube. Uh, Los Straitjackets, it sounds very, very formulaic and prosaic. Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer by Los Straitjackets for the first two thirds of it. And I've been with people and I've played it. And then suddenly in the last third, bang, and you just go to pieces and there's a meltdown, an urban meltdown of profound <clears throat> psychological energy. And this is also true in every one of their new songs on their remarkable new LP slash uh, CD called um, Jet Set. I think the name of it is called Yeah, 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 but all of them have this, always in the last third. Well, this is the last third of the podcast. And what I want to say is that look at yourself if you've ever observed ministry up close and seen yourself. What you'll find is that clergy are, in fact, often suppressed individuals who went in it for the right reasons. And that there's an awful lot of misunderstanding today and lack of forgiveness both in the church and outside the church, especially inside the church. And this has always been true, and it continues in Saints Progress because Pearson is finally good, saintly, St. Francis like Mr. Pearson is finally nailed by the church, just as Mr. Strangway is finally nailed by the wife of his rector, his, the pharisaical wife of the rector actually nails this good man for something that is utterly and completely actually a subset of something good and powerful. And finally, Christian, Strangway is nailed for being too Christian. And uh, Pearson is nailed by his own inability to, to contain, finally, an inward stress that is uncontainable. And finally, when it comes out in the most touching and real and normal and her and only he's the he's the only victim of his own uh, lack of integration because he loses people who are so close to him and yet ultimately finds them we hope his turning uh, and i've been to a place in palestine actually uh, which has a very direct connection with um, the very open ended and beautiful denouement of saints progress um which is uh, leaving the possibility of a reclaimed man. Now, look at all the clergy you know. One of the things you'll note if you know clergy up close is that they have a tremendous gravitation for overeating and obesity. It's just a fact. I've told you about Mark Rutherford who picked this up, William Hale White, in the late 19th century, and you'll see it in Dickens. It's all many of the clergy he doesn't like. You see it in Thackeray. You'll see it in Trollope because clergy, the, they, they can't act out in terms of sex or they'll lose their jobs. And professional ethics demands that they simply can't can't do it, and they shouldn't do it, obviously, but they can't, so that option is lost, and they can't act out really in terms of alcohol, unless they're very careful, and sort of, and no alcoholic finally can ultimately hide it, 
it always spills out eventually, especially to those in the congregation who may be members of AA. They'll see it a mile away. <clears throat> so it can't really, it, the one safe sort of unsuppressed area where you can kind of act out is in the area of food. And we the surveys, the, the number of American clergy, especially in the Protestant world, who are overweight, is it's an epidemic. I mean, we have an epidemic of it nationally, but the percentage is like 74% of uh, Protestant clergy in this country are qualify for obesity. It's all stress-related. They can't do this and they can't do that. And they can't get angry. There's no outlet for that. And Strangway makes the terrible mistake of getting angry, which calls where they deliberately threw in to kind of give the plot a little more juice and also to give, more importantly, humanity to this very good man. Because St. Francis himself was cahill anger, you know, and, and so was Jesus Christ, as we well know. <clears throat> and, um, Renaud picked that up in his La Vie de Jesus. And um, therefore, uh, they can't do it in anger or they'll lose their jobs, nor in the other things I've mentioned. But eating is acceptable. And uh, so you see a clergy often eating compensatorily. I've, God knows I've been there. I know all about this. It's my life. It's my life and I can do what I want. Don't push me. Eric Burden. <laughs> I can't say may he rest in peace because he's still alive. And I think I'd go anywhere to hear him now. I think he gave a concert, believe it or not, in Las Vegas. And next time... He's in Las Vegas, Lloyd. I am coming to hear old Eric Burden, old as he may be, just to make the pilgrimage. Now, the point being that uh, they're living – clergy do this, or or the other thing was, or they play uh, the organ late at night. Now, um, in uh, the church, this I've seen again and again and again, or they have some aesthetic hobby that they don't want people to know, but it's touching and wonderful, and this is William Inge country. Now, where do I leave this? What you find is that where she says – and this is the ending here – when Mrs. Burlicombe, in A Bit of Love, 1915, says, For all him being so moony and gentle-like, <clears throat> I think Mr. Strangway is a terribly passionate man inside. He's a goddess saint in him, for sure, but tis only half-baked, in a manner of speaking. Now, you know, you, you and I are really basically half-baked all the time. And we're not even half-baked, most of us. And this is the great um, power of what um, ultimately life is all about in its breaking capacity. And it's what ultimately we all need to have happen to us. And we need to go from half-baked to baked. Let me give you the two final examples, actually just one. I've talked about Father Sergius, and you know about that story, and it's a must I wish there was some humor in it. Tolstoy was not funny. And by the way, Galsworthy talks about this. He prefers Tolstoy to, in his later journals to Dostoevsky, but he finds no humor in Tolstoy, even though he regards him naturally as a great, great writer and genius and thinker. But in Father Sergius, this late novella, <clears throat> this wonderful young man uh, is converted and goes into the church um, because of a romantic situation. He finds out that the woman he has set his cap on to marry, uh, who he thinks is innocent and absolutely pure as a driven snow, is in fact involved in, in an absolutely sordid affair with a member of the royal family, in fact, the Tsar uh, in St. Petersburg. And Sergius, who is himself aristocratic, when he finds this out about this pure as the driven snow person who is actually not, it destroys his confidence in all things. He's disillusioned and he enters the church. Uh, later on, he is tempted again, or he's tempted sexually as a very, he's a great, regarded as a, as a wonderful monk, and he's tempted in a most remarkable um, manner, and he passes the test in a most dramatic, one of the most striking and arresting images and memories in all of Tolstoy. He passes the test by virtue of an extraordinary gift of spiritual discipline and becomes famous in all Russia as one of the holiest of all hermit monks. He's half-baked, however. He's half-baked. And then, if you remember the story, um, he becomes fully baked 
And uh, it takes basically three times. Now, we say three times and you're out, but that's not true, really. Three times and you're in. Because the most clergy have come into the church out of some deep disillusionment with other possibilities and a great desire to find their hope and their souls. Similarly, Sergius does. He then uh, he has to um, put up or shut up, and he does. But by virtue of the law, or by virtue of discipline, which is he's just given to him as a kind of gift in a very great moment of duress. And then, however, he's only half baked, like Pearson but more so like Strangway in A Bit of Love, and he must finally, something hits him in the deepest possible level, and he becomes actually able to do some good. Just as Pearson, he's hit, oh, once, twice, he's hit by a, a death, he, he's hit by a shock involving one of his children, and then he's hit by something else, which is um, worse because it's closer to home, and it involves the very deepest things that he holds most sacred, and he comes out of it, with the possibility of being fully baked. Strangway is hit um, three times, once by his own romantic problems, then by um, his own anger, and finally by a rejection from the very people who ought to be forgiving and accepting and emulating, uh, sorry, embodying the very heart of Christianity, which is stated so clearly by Galsworthy in the opening scene, and then he is finally able to do something. And... Uh, he uh, he uh, ends uh, the play in an amazing prayer that is one of the high moments in Galsworthy, and I don't think it's appreciated sufficiently. We know that Galsworthy valued this play, and he felt he had exorcised priggishness from Strangway. Strangway is now ready to serve. I crave that for myself. I crave that. I, I, I very much feel that, that I, I've, I've, I've been forced to be personally uh, more than half-baked because it uh, I've been pushed out and pushed in at the same time. Something very wonderful has been vouchsafed. What it means, therefore, to pull, an, to pull a Mr. Strangway at the end when he becomes really able to finally serve in a most Franciscan manner and a most unusual way. You've got to read this play. And ready to almost serve, like Edward Pearson, who is not fully baked but is maybe on the verge of becoming more than half-baked, maybe three-quarters baked. This is my hope. It's certainly, and I say this, my hope for me first, and I uh, trust you all have found some kind of aspiration in it for you. But let me just say, be fully baked, or at least your life was, was going to make you have to decide whether you're going to be half-baked or more than half-baked. And I hope this podcast has enabled that. Now, right now we're going to, I'm going to conclude with what I regard as one of the most open-ended and uplifting uh, minor hits from the late 1960s, which um, I was able to find in a good recording. And this, to my way of thinking, expresses what I think we all want to feel about the f uh, next uh, few days of our human experience on this earth. And so I give it to you. God bless and thank you very much.
DJ.